0: Good morning, everyone. If you guys could grab your seats, it's that time in our service now where we get to hear uh, what God wants to say to us and teach us today. So uh, please turn your attention and your hearts with me now to the scripture reading passage for this morning. And today we're going to read from the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. This is why I, Paul, am a prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles. You've heard, of course, about the responsibility to distribute God's grace, which God gave to me for you, right? God showed me his secret plan in a revelation, as I mentioned briefly before. When you read this, you'll understand my insight into the secret plan about Christ. Earlier generations didn't know this hidden plan that God has now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets through the Spirit. This plan is that the Gentiles would be co-heirs and parts of the same body and that they would share with the Jews in the promises of God in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I became a servant of the gospel because of the grace that God showed me through the exercise of His power. God gave His grace to me, the least of all God's people, to preach the good news about the immeasurable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. God sent me to reveal the secret plan that had been hidden since the beginning of time by God, who created everything. God's purpose is now to show the rulers and powers in the heavens, the many different varieties of his wisdom through the church. This was consistent with the plan he had from the beginning of time that he accomplished through Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ, we have bold bold and confident access to God through faith in him. So then... I ask you not to become discouraged by what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. This is God's living and active word for us today. Uh, May God add his blessing uh, to the reading of his word. Amen.
1: Thank you, Elder Mark, for reading God's word for us. During the Middle Ages, there were no bibles translated into people's native tongue as a result the church had the difficult task of trying to teach the bible to people who were bible-less to people who had no access to the scriptures and so one creative way the the church went about trying to teach the scriptures to their people was through their cathedrals What they would do is build object lessons into their church walls, into their church sanctuary, so that other people might learn about the scriptures. This explains why in many of these cathedrals you see these huge stained glass windows depicting various biblical scenes. It was the church's way of trying to educate the people. This is why in many of these cathedrals you see lots of statues of various saints. Now, one distinctive feature of these cathedrals is that they all had a cross-shaped floor plan. They were literally shaped into a cross. Uh, This is what uh, architects call a cruciform structure. Cruce means cross, form means shaped. And so if you've ever been to Rome and seen St. Peter's Basilica, or if you've ever visited Notre Dame, they are both examples of cruciform cathedrals. Here's an aerial view of Notre Dame. Hopefully it appears. Can you see the cross-like structure of Notre Dame, at least before the fire broke out a few years ago? Well, as much as the cross served as the blueprint for cathedral architecture, the Bible teaches us that the cross also serves as the blueprint for the Christian life. The cross serves us and shapes us into a cross. You may remember Jesus' words in Luke 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Cross-carrying then is the mode of the Christian life. Through Jesus, we are shaped by the cross into the shape of the cross. Let me repeat that again. Through Jesus, we are shaped by the cross into the shape of the cross. Becoming more and more cruciform, becoming into the shape of the cross is the goal of the Christian life. And so what does it look like to have a cruciform life? Well, here in our passage, I want to bring out three marks of cruciformity. The first mark of a cruciform life is steadfastness through suffering. Steadfastness through suffering. In verse 1, Paul reminds the Ephesians that he is a prisoner. And then at the end of our passage in verse 13, he writes, So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions. What's going on here? The reason why Paul writes this particular section in Ephesians is because he is concerned that his imprisonment, his being under Roman custody, will discourage the Ephesian church. His concern is that his present predicament will cause the Ephesians to doubt God's power over Paul's life and over their life. I want you to keep in mind that in chapter 1, Paul just profusely praised God, praised Jesus as the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords. He just told us that he reigns above every ruler, authority, and power, that there's no enemy that sits over him, that Jesus reigns over all. And so we have this exalted picture of Jesus reigning in heaven, and Paul at the same time says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am God's commissioned servant to the Gentiles, but I'm also in chains, and I'm in prison. And you could see why some would doubt Paul's claim. Paul, if you, what you say is true. If Jesus is really reigning in heaven and you are a messenger of Jesus, what in the world are you doing in prison? Your circumstances don't reflect your claim. It's kind of like a high school student going around bragging to everyone that he's the son of the uh, the king of Arabia, and yet the students look at his shabby clothes and look at his shabby car and be like, I don't think so. Your circumstances don't match your claim. And so Paul is concerned that because of the discrepancy of his situation and everything he just said about who Jesus is, the Ephesians, too, would begin to doubt him. Paul's faith, however, doesn't waver. His calling does not vacillate. He remains Steadfast. He remains convinced. I am God's chosen apostle. I am his light to the Gentiles. I will not be phased by my doubters and my haters. My conviction and confidence remains true. And we see this in the way he describes himself. He says in verse 1 I am a prisoner of Rome. No, he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. That's Paul's way of saying, "Yes, I'm in prison. Yes, I'm chained up to these walls, and for 4 years I'll be waiting for my arraignment. But I am not imprisoned by Rome. This is all the outworking of God's plan. I am a prisoner of Christ. God has ordained this to happen to me. I may not understand why" but I know it is true. His conviction and confidence is displayed through the repeated assertions found throughout this passage that he is indeed an apostle of God. He writes in verse 2, assuming you've heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you, God gave me this ministry. Then in verse 3, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. God is the one who revealed the gospel to me. Verse 7, I was made a servant of this gospel. Again, God is the one who appointed me as a servant. Ephesian church, I know my chains may look like God has abandoned me. But know that that is not the case. God is carrying out his plan and purposes through me. And so he remains steadfast through suffering. Now, how can he remain so convicted and convinced despite his imprisonment? I think it's because Paul remembered what Jesus said. Jesus made it very clear that as Christians suffering is not the exception suffering is to be expected it's not the exception it's to be expected after all did not Jesus say in John 16:33 I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace you will have suffering in this world be courageous did not Jesus say in Matthew 10, verse 22, you will be hated by everyone because of my name? Did not Peter write in 1 Peter two twenty one, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Jesus doesn't say, take up your pillows and come follow me. He doesn't say, take up your tempur mattresses, your jacuzzis, and your couches, and come follow me. This is going to be so nice and easy. No, he says, take up your cross daily. A cross is an instrument of torture and death. Jesus is making it clear, you're going to suffer on my account. But it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it helpful mantra to keep in mind is this. God's providence does not equal God's countenance. God's providence does not equal God's countenance. For those of you unfamiliar with the word providence, it refers to God's governing, ordering, and arranging the circumstances and events of our daily living. It refers to our daily situation and place in life. Do not confuse your circumstances with his countenance. Countenance refers to God's facial expression, how he feels about you. I find oftentimes that whenever something bad happens to us, when we encounter affliction, if we get into a car accident, if we get fired on the job, if we become sick or ill, we conclude God must be mad at me. God must be angry with me. I must have done something wrong. I want you to know that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you put your trust in him, he can't be mad at you. Because all of your sins, including your future ones and the ones you haven't yet committed, have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and the chief emotion God has towards you now is one of love. And so it can't be because he's angry at you. Now, can God use affliction and suffering to wake us up from our spiritual slumber? To cause us to repent over things that are separating us from the fellowship of God? Absolutely. But when he does that, he does that not because he's mad at you. He does that because he loves you. It's an expression of his love. And so may we not confuse providence with his countenance. Paul did not, which explains why he's able to remain steadfast through suffering. And so that's the first mark of a cruciform life. The second mark of a cruciform life is deepening humility, deepening humility. If you've attended New Life 101 recently, you might remember the picture of the head of grain. What happens when the head of a grain, uh, when, when grain matures? More and more, it begins to bow its head. So too, the Christian life. Do you, any of you know what Paul means in Latin? It comes from the word paulus, which means little or small. Remember what Paul's name was before he met Jesus? Saul. And when a the average Jew thought of Saul, what did they think of? King Saul, who was known for his size and stature. He was a head taller than everyone else. And so Paul goes from Saul to little guy, right? I think this renaming is not accident- accidental, but intentional, It demonstrates the second mark of a cruciform life, which is a deepening humility. You see, what's really interesting in our passage is that Paul goes through a very delicate dance. On one hand, he's asserting his confidence that God has called him as an apostle. He's defending his apostleship. This I know is true. I am the chosen servant to the Gentiles, to you guys. At the same time, as much as he asserts his confidence in God's call on his life, he also expresses his deep humility, how undeserving he is of this call. And so we find both confidence and yet vulnerability at the same time. Notice the passive language he uses in his passage. Verse 3, the mystery was made known to me. Guys, this message of grace, this message of how Jews and Gentiles have become co-heirs into the family of God and we are all citizens of, of heaven, I didn't come up with this on my own. It was revealed to me. Then in verse seven, I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me. Again, just passive language all over the place. This is Paul's way of saying, guys, I didn't volunteer to become an apostle. It's not like God held tryouts and say, the best person can become my chosen servant to the Gentiles. No, God sought me while I was still persecuting the church. All credit goes to God, none to me. And so Paul makes it clear, yes, I'm an apostle, but It's not because of who I am. It's solely because of who he is. And he underscores his humility all the more when he shockingly writes in verse eight, this grace was given to me the least of all the saints. Let's think about that for a moment. Paul says he's the least of all the saints. The saints refer to the church Christians he's saying I'm the least worthy the least qualified of all believers how do we make sense of this this is the man who planted multiple churches led hundreds if not thousands of people to saving faith and who wrote more books of the New Testament than anyone else Paul, if this is true, if you are the least of all Christians, what does that make me? Right? Is this a, a case of false humility? Is Paul just saying this, these self-deprecating words so that we might respond and say, Oh, Paul, what are you talking about? You are such a good guy. and So we can just kind of shower compliments upon him. I don't think so what's going on here I think Paul in his mind really believed this to be true that he was the least of all Christians you see there's a very counterintuitive dynamic that is at play when you and I grow in our faith the more the gospel gets a hold of us the the more we walk with Jesus the greater our awareness becomes of our own sinfulness. The closer you get to Jesus, who is the light of the world, the more clearly you're able to look into your heart. And you realize, as you grow in your faith, that you are more sinful than you ever realized. When we first come to faith, at least this is true of me, perhaps it's true of you, God revealed to me enough of my sin that it led me to recognize my need for a savior, my need for forgiveness. And so when I was a freshman in high school, what God revealed to me were my surface sins, the unrighteous, bad things that I did. For me back then, what God convicted me of was of how much I, to my shame, cheated my freshman year. Almost every A I got was fraudulent, right? And so after my freshman year, during that summer, God convicted me of my surface sin, my legitimate sin. And I said, God, I can't live this way anymore. I want to give my life to you Forgive me. But something happened as I continued to walk with Christ more and more. I realized that not only do I have to continue to repent of my unrighteous bad works, but God was helping me to see my self-righteous good works. He helped me to see that a lot of the good things that I do in my life my performance, my studies, my service at church, the way I I, I love my family, the way I love my friends, were actually really not that virtuous. Because when I dissect the motives behind those actions, I realize that I'm really doing these things so that I might look good so that people might praise me, so that people might think highly of me, so that they might be nice to me back. Believe me, there are a number of times where after I preach a message that I think does a good job, I'm walking away not thinking, Lord, I pray that they are blessed by the message, but I'm thinking these thoughts of, I hope they think I'm a good preacher. And God reveals these hidden motives behind these superficial good deeds, and I realize, oh my gosh, I need to repent of my self-righteous good works too. I am a far worse sinner than I realize, as I use different things to platform myself before others. And so the more I walk with God, the more God gives me the grace to see into my heart and to see how truly selfish and self-centered I am. Now, is Paul really becoming more and more sinful as he walks with God? Of course not. He's becoming more Christ-like. But the awareness of his sinfulness is growing. And that's why it feels as if He is the least of all saints. And so that's Mark 2 of a cruciform life. It's a deepening humility. I know someone is deep in their walk with the Lord when they're more shocked by their own sins than they are about the sins of others when they spend more time confessing sin than complaining about other people's sins. The way the gospel works is the opposite of the speck log dynamic. The Pharisees were so busy looking at the specks in other people's lives, failing to see the log in their own eye. But someone who walks with Jesus for a long time doesn't even notice the specks in other people's life because he's too busy repenting of the log in his own eye. And so that's deepening humility, which leads us to the third and final mark of a cruciform life. In addition to being steadfast through suffering and a deepening humility, a cruciform life is a life that no longer lives for the self, but lives for others lives in service of others. When the gospel gets a hold of you, when the cross shapes you, you realize more and more that this life of yours is not your own but belongs to God. We see this in verse two when Paul says, assuming you've heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you. That word administration is where we get the word steward. You might remember a steward is vastly different from an owner mindset. A steward is someone who is entrusted with the responsibility to manage someone else's possessions, that which belongs to someone else. And so a babysitter is a steward of someone else's children. A UPS driver is a steward of someone else's packages, a, a, a financial investor, investment banker is a steward of someone else's funds, and so they take great consideration and care because what they're managing belongs to someone else. Similarly, Paul sees himself as a steward of the gospel. This message is not my own. It's the message of Jesus Christ and these this these people I'm called to serve. I'm supposed to Communicate the love of God to them. Lord, I am yours. I'm not here to live for myself. And this servant posture is further underscored in verse 7, where Paul says, I was made a servant of this gospel. The word servant there is the Greek word diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon. And though Diaconos is translated as deacon, the office, in, in places in the New Testament. In most places, it simply means servant. And do you know what a diaconos was back then? A diaconos was someone who waited tables. He's someone who would be at a restaurant, at a banquet assigned a certain number of tables, and the owner would say, you need to pay attention to the customer's needs and serve them when they need you. And that's how Paul saw himself, a waiter serving, of, uh, serving the Gentiles. Now, if I were to just end there and say that a cruciform life is to be a servant of others, I I, I don't know if that fully captures how radical uh, servanthood is. You see, for most of us, when we serve others, we will serve others, but to a certain point. There's usually a line that we don't cross when we serve someone. That line usually deals with our comfort or our well-being. So that if serving someone requires us to lose our comfort or if it impacts our well-being, we'll say, sorry, Charlie, I can't do this anymore. But for Paul, he puts no limitations. He preaches the gospel to the Ephesians even though he ends up in prison. He will not let the threat of imprisonment hold back his service to the Gentiles. Why? He says something extraordinary in verse 13. And I think this serves as kind of like the the goal of what cruciform service looks like. He says in verse 13, So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. My afflictions are your glory. Ephesians, I will gladly go to prison and make this trade if it means your glory if it leads to your freedom, if it leads to your well-being. This sacrificial dynamic of how much Paul was willing to suffer for the Ephesians reminds me of um, a a couple that I married uh, many years ago. I want to say seven, eight years ago. Um, I knew the wife-to-be. I never knew... Her husband to be. And so we're doing premarital counseling, and naturally we talk about our upbringings uh, when it comes to counseling. And I noticed that whenever the husband talked about his parents, his voice would kind of quiver out of deep affection and love for his parents. I'm like, what's going on here? And I, soon discovered that his parents immigrated from Vietnam uh, to the States with barely anything in their pockets to start a new life, to give an opportunity for their kids. And as long as he can remember, both mom and dad worked as custodians as he went to school, custodians of the same company. 20, 25, 30 years, they worked as custodians, supported him and his brother as they went to high school, graduated from college, and now just graduated from pharmacy school. And he spoke with them with so much pride and love, knowing how much they loved him. Now, let me ask you, when when his parents saw him receive his high school diploma, Do you think they were complaining about their work? When they saw their son graduate from college, graduate from pharmacy school, walk down the aisle with his newly minted bride, do you think they had regrets over the number of bathrooms they had to clean or toilets they had to scrub? No, they are beaming with pride. Why? Because their affliction was his glory. And I think that gives us a taste of what the cross does to us. It so shapes us that we begin to love people, not just our children, but we begin to love people to the point where we're willing to sacrifice for them because our affliction becomes their glory. And this shouldn't shock us that the cross transforms us into sacrificial people. This shouldn't surprise us. After all, what symbol of sacrifice exists out there that is greater than the cross of Jesus Christ? The one who bore our sin, bore God's wrath in our place For the cross means affliction. Jesus' affliction equals our glory. And the more that reality of what God endured for us grabs a hold of you and me, the more we believe that, the more willing we'll be to do that for others. And so that's... Those are the three marks of a cruciform life. The more we walk with God, the more we'll remain steadfast through suffering, the more humble we become, and the more we serve others sacrificially. Let's pray. Lord, we confess to you that the marks of a cruciform life sounds so foreign to us, especially since many of us live in Orange County, a land of comfort and ease. The idea of persevering through suffering, the idea of loving people to the point of suffering is so antithetical to our culture. It's so antithetical to the grain of our self-seeking souls. And yet, Lord, you have shown us the way of what true life looks like. You've shown us the way, O oh Lord, of the cross. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to become more and more like you, a people whose head is bowed in loving service of others. So we pray that you would do this work in our hearts and that new life, would be known as a church full of servants and we pray this in jesus name